Greetings, dear listener. Gomology is back with what I guess we could call a fresh season, which means basically that I took a break and uh, now I'm back again. Uh, enjoyed a break, found some fresh motivation and guests, and uh, I am looking forward to putting out some uh, new episodes on a regular basis. Uh, thankfully, I was missed. I had quite a few messages asking where I was. Very gratifying. I love hearing from you. So do get in touch. I'll um, put the contact details at the end of the episode and uh, they're in the details. As always, of course, if you have a suggestion, get in touch and I'll see what I can do. Now, um, I'm your host, Nick Johannesson. And for those of a meteorological nature, I know you appreciate my little weather reports. In small town Norway, the weather is flip-flopping between the extremes. We've had, uh, quite recently, minus 22 Celsius and a metre of snow, then up to 10 degrees and sunshine. And now, somewhere in the middle, snow, sunshine and cold. It certainly keeps a keen garmsman on his tippy-toes, dressing for this sort of weather. So, less of the idle chat, let's get into it. Today, we're off to Germany to talk about camouflage. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology. Now, my guest today, and this is something you can't see, but I can see here, is is sitting in what appears to be a pile of possibly ex-military garments. Now, I'm sure we're going to hear all about this. So uh, welcome, Philip. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, Nick. It's a pleasure. Hello, Nick. Hello, guys. Yeah, I'm Phil. I'm the guy behind uh, my small label, Tectonic, um, under which I make mostly bags, but also aprons and other stuff, and mostly from upcycled vintage material, especially vintage military materials, like you've just said. So it's a uh, kind of a wonderful spring day here in small town Norway. Um, where are you and what's the weather like where you are? I'm working living in Magdeburg, which is a like a state capital in eastern Germany, about one and a half hour from Berlin. And it's gray, rainy, typically British weather, <laughs> I would say. Very cold outside and very cold in my studio because it's uh, like a huge abandoned warehouse, basically, I moved into. So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds Not like so perfect, springy. Perfect day for a, a long-winded, extended chat about the sort of stuff we care deeply about. Absolutely. So, before we get into the sort of uh, bread and butter, meat and veg of what you do, um, you're a guy that sews. How did you get into that? Well, that's a um, a question that that put me with a long-winded answer. So basically, I felt different phases in my life with sewing. My first contact was when I was 16 years old and I met a local artist. He had clothes, like a jacket and a pair of baggy pants, made from German airmail bags. They are very lightweight, silver, shiny material. And that was a, it was a phase, like when people are 16 or when I was 16, I was like, looking for, you know, having a unique kind of clothes. But of course, uniqueness is usually very expensive if you're not wearing the same as everyone else. And I approached that guy at a like a festive event and was like, dude, I need one of your pairs of pants from that material. And he brushed me off literally with like, dude, your clothes are made by small Pakistani children in, in child labor likely. So if they can do it, you can do your own clothes. 
And I was, <laughs> I was like, what is he talking about? You know, you're 16, never thought about fashion or clothes or anything. Uh, but he was serious. And he approached me like a few weeks later. I was like, hey, dude, don't you want to come by and learn how to sew? Um, and yeah, I spent some time with that guy when I was 16, about a year or so in his studio. He was like, as told, like an artist making sculptures, everything. And sewing was merely just one way of his kind of expression. And that's how I saw it. I was like, uh, I'm not a tailor just because you're gluing two pieces of paper together. You're not a gluer. <laughs> you're using glue to, to make something work. And I'm using a sewing machine to make something work. That's what it was for me. And I was making back then, I was making pants usually, like literally cutting open a pair of pants and using it as, as a template and copying the, the style. And I was using um, the cheapest material available back then for me, which was Eastern German army shelter halves in their rain, uh, pattern camouflage, because they were 10 euros a piece and they are one, about two meters by two meters, a bit smaller. And that's exactly enough for a pair of pants and it's rough, yeah. sturdy material. So it was a natural choice. Uh, and that's how I started. Um, then um, later, yeah, sorry. That had been around the time that East Germany ceased to exist. I'm not that old, Nick. <laughs> it was about uh, 2000, 2002, 2003, about that time it was. So okay, 10 so years they... after unification, but they were abandoned then and they are still abandoned, these shelter halves. Um, but it was like a natural selection. I always had the thing for soldiers and reading fancy novels and that kind of stuff, um, even though I had very long hair. But uh, yeah, that was kind of a natural choice. And then soon died down a bit because I got drafted into the army and was in the military. And after a few years in the army, I started suing again. Um, basically, when I got into a kind of unit where like, we weren't looking too deep into people's appearance and clothes and stuff because usually the army is very strict on your appearance, but uh, it was more like task-minded. So if you were doing alterations to your gear that were purposeful, you usually got away with it. And I started years later in the army. I was like, you were spring when you were younger. Why don't you make your own kind of kind of gear? Because just like in civilian life, if you want uniqueness, you have to pay a lot of money. If you don't wear one of the mill standard uh, equipment, standard gear, standard fashion, you have to have a very deep pocket. And it's the same in the army. If you want the very special stuff nobody has, you have to buy American, some unique boutique company. It's very similar to civilian fashion in normal life. Uh, the more unique you want to get, uh, the more you have to pay. Or you go a different way and make your own stuff, or in my case, modify your own stuff and that's when i started sewing again um on a recreational basis i had my sewing machine in my barracks room uh at one point when i had my own when i had a certain uh, like uh, a certain rank and had my own room and could bring my sewing machine um yeah and then i'm still not making bags of course <laughs> so there was a third phase of my life that's when i left the army and came back to magdeburg i was approached pretty soon by a, a friends of mine who were running a gallery um they they have like like like, like an art gallery um where you have events and everything um and they approached me they had a lot of these old um people tend to say east german but they are the same all over the world old air mattresses um they are rubberized canvas 
Yeah. Like okay. people remember them. I guess you had them too. They were usually red and blue, but they were in all kinds of flowery patterns. Um, and they asked me if they had those. I don't know where from. And they asked me if I could make bags from them. Simple messenger bags from, from colorful air mattresses. And I was, yeah, well, why not? It's rubberized material. It's an interesting challenge. Um, and I made those. And they found quite the liking of local people. And that's, we're talking late 2017 now. And that's when I was making, I started making bags by making bags from air mattresses for a local art gallery. That was like my final phase of sewing so far. They must have been incredibly bulky. Hmm. Well, there were sometimes when I was using the material double because they are very heavy. That's indeed, they are quite heavy, these air mattresses. But if you were like, like uh, using only one side and line them with a thinner material, um, they're, they're quite light or relatively light and it's not super heavy. It's, um, yeah, it's simply a thin rubberized canvas um, layer. And it's not much more heavy than your average thick military style canvas. It's difficult to sew because it's rubberized, so it will stick to everything and you have to have a certain kind of needle or, or you have to tinker with your machine a bit. Um, but yeah, it wasn't as bad as I was uh, afraid it would be. So yeah. <laughs> so so how, did that, how did that work out for you? You came out from the army, you'd made a sort of side hustle in the army of pimping, uh, pimping uniforms and, and gear. <laughs> I'm still a bit curious about exactly what you were doing to these military articles. <laughs> and then you were making flowery rubberized bags. Exactly. That's the question. How did that work out? The point is, um, I still have some of these bags from early back then. And people, when I'm doing local fairs and markets, I do sometimes because I am from my local area. So I tend, to, if I'm invited to a local market, I tend to go there if it's possible for me, even if I don't sell anything. Um, and people find those attractive and are like, oh, it's the old amateurs from back then. I see the patterns, the flowery floral patterns. Ah, I remember. Um, they, 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 get, they, they gain a bit of attraction, but... Um, if you see into my Instagram, look into my Instagram now or my web shop, there isn't much made from air mattresses. So it didn't work out that well. And I guess that's why, because I'm not a trained tailor, I'm not a trained bag maker, I'm not a designer. So what I'm doing without going too deep now is I'm trying to find a point to sell a story or to, to tell a story. I'm sorry, but it's telling that's, that's motivating me. And with those air mattresses, even like they could be as colorful as they want, the floral patterns on them, uh, it stops usually at, oh, an old air mattress I know from my childhood or whatever. Okay. But I can't tell more of a story there. And that's why I went away from that a bit or more and more and found my niche with vintage military gear, with parachutes, with stuff I am more familiar with. I naturally honestly have more of an interest made, uh, interest in and stuff I can tell more and more and more of a story with. But you can use anything else. There's people having an interest in Western gear and they can do it with Western. But my interest, my, my niche, so to speak, became more and more a vintage military upcycling style, which is why I went away from the very colorful things. Because as you said, I came from a military background. People don't see it nowadays, maybe. But it's... Um, yeah, if you're not a designer, if you're not having the most innovative cut 
for your clothes, if you're not making the best possible stitches that are even waterproof or something, which all I'm not, um, you have to find something to 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 be unique or to 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 justify basically doing what you're doing. And yeah, that's why I went away a bit from the colorful air mattresses things. I still do it sometimes, but that's not what makes my work unique, I think. I would still like to see a photo of you in your shiny, uh, <laughs> shiny pants and long hair as a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> oh, 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 I can send you later. <laughs> yeah, that it was, was a also interesting face. that as a sixteen-year-old, you were using the shelter halves, basically mm -hmm. bits of bits of army tents to um, to make things, and. Once you got your bag making into up to speed, um, you have been making using all manner of uh, army surplus. And there is, if there's one impression I have of army surplus, it is that there are it's bountiful. There's so much of it. That's right. That's so right. Could That's you talk a bit right. about how you find it? What there is to be found? Yeah, um, it's like. Generally, like you're right, it's bountiful in general, but it's like with every other topic, um, with other area of collecting, um, you pretty quickly find, okay, there's a difference between general generic army uniform stuff and the stuff that's really interesting. And I'm trying to find stuff that's nowadays that's more interesting than the average uniform you get for a few bucks. Uh, which you still get. You get German uniforms for a handful of euros, uh, less than 10 euros. You can get completely dressed if you're looking right. Um, with high quality, made in Germany um, clothes, if you're watching it neutrally. Um, the point is for me trying to find things that are a bit off the beaten track, that are kind of iconic, that are recognizable, but they are, but which are at the same time not valuable collectibles. Um, that would be too expensive and maybe sometimes if they have history on them would be morally questionable to cut up to make bags from. Um, but you were asking where I get my stuff and that is a combination. The, the point, the, 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 the most disappointing thing and the most surprising thing for a lot of foreigners is that, especially in East Germany, there is not a big scene for used military gear on flea markets. Like we have a big one in our home local city with, I don't know, 200, 300 vendors. And there's maybe one guy selling vintage military gear. And that's a shady guy selling cheap German Wehrmacht impressions and stuff like you really don't want to be associated with. You're like, okay, I see now why people frown upon military stuff. Um, I can understand a bit. He's selling fake busts of Wehrmacht military leaders or stuff like this. So... It's very uncommon to encounter military military stuff here on local markets and flea markets and stuff. And so I usually buy my stuff on uh, on eBay, to be honest. But I also have some dealers I met on um, German equivalent to Craigslist, basically, um, who are putting aside stuff for me that's not collector's grade, so to speak. For example, behind me, you see a lot of uh, flight gear. And there was one guy selling me uh, broken G-suits run by jet pilots to counter G-forces um, and stuff. But the important part is those pants have a lot of interesting brass zippers. Um, 
when he was selling me the ones with with broken stuff a collector wouldn't want. So they are instead of a hundred euros plus, they were I don't know twenty euros for me. But I could salvage like fifteen zippers from them. I can then use in my bags, and that's the stuff I love the most. That guy has a big box uh, labeled Backmaker Magdeburg, uh, and he's putting all the broken stuff there. Um, uh, putting in there and, and sending to me. So that's basically the two main things I get my stuff from dealers who send me stuff they don't really have a use for, but I can use, like tents without tent poles uh, for a secondhand shop. They, they can't really use it, but they know I can cut it up and use it for sewing um, and uh, eBay lots. So not looking for specific camouflages because when they are well described and the seller knows what he has, it's the basic, you know, ABC of of, of, of buying stuff. Um, if the seller knows he has a rare piece, it's usually too expensive for me, but I laugh uh, lots like uh, uh, general uh, army stuff found in the attic. And that's the stuff I love to bid on because then it's a duffel bag and maybe two shelter halves, nothing too spectacular. But the good old bread and butter, olive drab canvas, I can use it basis for my bags. Maybe some webbing, maybe some straps. Um, yeah, that's usually how I get my stuff. Now let's just deal with one of the elephants in the room right now. I mean, is there stuff you won't touch for various reasons? Well, I think, yes, there is. There is. I'm not too strict, but naturally, coming from Germany, there's a lot of, internationally even, there's a lot of obsession of... Uh, almost a sexualized obsession with Germany in the Second World War. You know, people still think like, 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 like it wouldn't have been disproven decades ago that everything German military was super impressive, super good, super better than everything. And obviously the German Wehrmacht and SS had a lot of camouflage patterns that are interesting. No question about it. They are visually appeasing. They're interesting. But... I'm afraid if you're working with that stuff in Germany, you're attracting a certain kind of people I don't want to be associated with. Not because of a business point of view, but because personally I'm 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 a very left-leaning politically person. I don't want to be associated with with this kind of people. I find it un unhealthy and un. I really don't like it dealing with these people being too having a, an unhealthy obsession with, with German World War II stuff. So, yeah, short answer, I don't often work with German World War II stuff. Um, I did sometimes with, with less common patterns or less specific patterns, but only for people I knew how they are. I knew from the internet, people from the US or Great Britain, I know, uh, I knew where they're politically aligned and they they won't showcase it as something, um, yeah, praising World War II German stuff, which is my personal opinion and it's my business so I can enforce that thing <laughs> and I try to enforce that thing. Uh, other people tend to call everything non-political, but I find it very political, especially military gear. Um, so yeah, that's an area they don't work with a lot. We'll get into that. We'll follow up on that a little bit later. I just wanted to mention, I find it very strange how people collecting army clothing will wear um, the original owner's name mm -hmm. on their stuff. And they'll okay. often 
they often research and try to find out who the soldier or the pilot okay. or so forth was and sort of try to make this connection. Mm. I find that very unhealthy and <laughs> weird. Um, From a historical standpoint, I find it interesting. I had like one or two times looked up uh, US soldiers when they have a, I don't know what it's called in English, in the US Army, their service number. Um and they have like usually online lists where you can at least look up where the guy came from. I find it interesting. I don't, uh, yeah, that can become unhealthy too, I guess. But uh, I mean, from a historical standpoint, it's sometimes interesting to see where peace has been or has not been. But 99% of the stuff you'll get hasn't seen combat or anything because surprise, even nowadays, 99% of the camp, even if the high days of Iraq and Afghanistan was 99% of the soldiers weren't deployed all the time. So uh, yeah, it's very unlikely generally to have something in your hands that's actually seen combat or something like that. Again, it's it's so bountiful. Now, you mentioned the yeah. flight suits as a major source of quality metal zippers. Hmm. Um, a lot of what you do is also based around camouflage. Now, should we talk a bit about the origins of camouflage, um, why it came to be, how it works? We can, of course, but I, I mean, I'm no expert in that. The other guys being more expert. Um, generally, how it works, I mean, so from a principle, you're, it's always a, a combination of two factors of blending and distortion. So what you want to do is you want to blend in with your surroundings but you also want to distort the shape of whatever you're camouflaging. It would be a vehicle, so you need big patterns because it's a big item. For a soldier, it's smaller, so usually camouflage patterns on soldiers are way smaller than they are on a vehicle because the idea is to break up your shape and at the same time blend in with your surroundings. With a white clear background in the Antarctic, of course, you're wearing white because and you're perfectly bending in, but usually you're not in front of a uniform, unicolored thing. So it's a combination of trying to blend in with your colors, but at the same time, distort the shape of your body or whatever you're trying to hide and how it came to being. I mean, like I said, I'm no expert. There are a lot of books out there, usually out of print and very, very expensive. Like the the very important Hardy Blackman uh, book, the maker of Maharishi, a quite famous fashion brand, to be honest. He made the standard book on camouflage that's now selling for in excess of a thousand pounds on eBay because it's been out of print. I managed to get it. Um, and he's doing a lot of basic research. Yeah, of course, uh, they started with hand painting stuff in, in the First World War for snipers or scouts. Um, generally, the Italian telemetico pattern from the late 1920s is considered to be the first industrially produced camouflage fabric used for uniforms um yeah that's kind of the history where it comes from the individual soldier camouflage the the british soldiers in the Boer war dying uh, they or after the Boer war dying their white uniforms khaki with tea that kind of uh, that's kind of the history yeah it is interesting because at some point soldiers went from being almost peacocks in the battlefield with red jackets and <laughs> big hats and so yeah. forth to, to not wanting to be seen. I mean, it, it took them a while to understand that there were advantages of not being but, 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 target. Yes, yes, but it's also a thing. It's always a combination of things. It's never, you, it's never an easy thing like how stupid are they to be bright red painted 
well, or bright, wearing bright red uniforms. Well, they were shooting at a distance of, I don't know, 50 yards, 50 meters or something, or 100. You couldn't hide anyway. They were, they were moving in close formation. And you could say, how stupid is that? Moving in close formation. Well, they were firing with muskets in the Napoleonic Wars. So there wasn't, there were singular shooters like the Tyrolleurs in France or the Jaegers in Germany, but they were highly specialized. Only a few soldiers. The mess was like, like the whole, you weren't seeing the individual soldier. They were always seeing the battalion or the company or, you know, the, the formation of soldiers was, was one unit, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, you could only control that when the next man is standing next to you and you had to be close because, and that's why they had the long rifles because they were standing so close to each other. It's always connected. It's never a thing like, uh, oh, how stupid are they in the Napoleonic Wars? They were wearing red uniforms or whatever. Yeah. But they were standing next to each other, shooting at each other with their single loading muskets. It's a yeah, Titan thing. I had a historic visit to a to a battlefield of the Napoleonic War in Jena Auerstedt in East Germany with a lieutenant colonel who had his, I don't know, 300th tour there, spoke fluent French, and it was very eye-opening and seeing like, yeah, they weren't just stupid. It was the technique back then. Uh, yeah. Okay. There wasn't yeah, the individual soldier. <laughs> yeah. um, what is interesting, though, about camouflage is that, I mean, there isn't just one type and there isn't even one best type but mm -hmm. every country every place every time period seems to have its own variants yeah. so why is it that i mean who does the best one and <laughs> why is it best and um why are they all different um i think and again i'm no Terry expert or camouflage expert, but um, I think it's a combination of technical developments that happened at certain points, most prominent the emergence of digital patterns. When you're thinking, why would you make a digital pattern made from pixels? There are no square shapes in nature. Yes, but if you take a step back two or three meters, they began to, you know, to, to, to merge into, into one shape or something like a pixel works. That was a technical development. Nobody thought of it. Nobody had worked with digital uh, camouflages. So at one point they became feasible. Um, infrared, the emergence of infrared um, night vision technology was a major thing when like in late World War II, the Germans like all the nations were uh, working on infrared devices, but the Germans thought they're going to come next. So they made a pattern that was heavily, um, it was even with dark black charcoal colored at areas to work good on infrared devices that no one else was, was using but the Germans, but they thought that would be the next big thing. So even in late 1945, the emergence of night vision technology was a technical uh, input, so to speak. But the other thing is, again, like I said, a soldier spends 99% of his time out of combat in his barracks, uh, going to his barracks uh, or to his yeah, point of work, so to speak. So it's a lot of um, representation for a nation, a visual aspect, because... I didn't spend most of my time even in tactical training. You're spending time in the works, you're working, you're going to work. It's a lot of, um, there's a bigger static point. Um, and being uniquely identifiable, because of course, simply spoken, if everyone is wearing the same uniform, it's difficult to make out who's who. 
which is why in Ukraine a lot of soldiers are wearing colored bands around their arms. Counterproductive to camouflage, but because they're all wearing very, very similar uniforms, you have to be recognizable again to not be fired at by your own forces. So yeah, I think it's a combination of technical developments at some points um, when there's a generational change in camouflage and an aesthetical thing um, that you can't dismiss because, like I said, 99% of the time you're not hiding in combat, but you're doing your everyday work and being seen by your, your country's uh, population and have to be representative. Which I guess also explains the crossover from military to fashion streetwear and the fascination with camouflage there, either in the form of straight copies of it or sort of fashion camouflage. I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's a, again, I'm not a fashion student, so I don't know the history. There's great guys on Instagram doing basic research work on the emergence or the, the transfer of, of, of items from the army into the civilian work. Again, Hardy Blackman's book, uh, DPM, Disruptive Pattern Material, um, has a lot of 50s, 60s, 70s, punk scene, music, rock and roll scene, how they influenced by wearing surplus camouflage, how other people would wear it. Um, and I think it's it's also a lot of availability. Because, like I said, it's super cheap usually. Certain generations, especially when I don't know the British were surplusing, getting a new camouflage pattern, the market the market was, was flooded with old British uh, uniforms. German uniforms have always been plentiful, um, and yeah, like I said, you're getting a very cheap, relatively high quality piece of fashion made usually in your country, and I don't know how expensive a jacket made in Germany would be on the on the open market. But for the military, it's made by small German companies and it's super cheap for a few bucks. You get a slightly used, sometimes they don't even check it and you get a brand new one. I had surplus gear that was brand new with the cutter labels still in there and everything and the chart from the original tailor. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's also a lot of being simply available. See it after every war, after the Second World War, people making dresses from 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 parachutes, uh, all these stories, um, yeah, repurposing all kind of camouflage they had or gear they had. Some of it being camouflage and making it into into clothes. Um, yeah. I was just thinking, I was watching a, a crime drama on TV recently, and uh, part of it was in Holland, where clearly. I don't know if they were military or police guys in uniform, but they were wearing a um, camouflage pattern that included lots of um, purple or pink bits. And I was thinking, what what on earth are they wanting to blend in with there? Have you ever come across that one? I, I haven't come across that one, but they are countries um, who especially, like I said, went with the identification part of camouflage, of a uniform, way more than of a hiding and camouflaging part. Um, very famously, I don't know, in, in Iraq, there was like a youth organization uniform. I think it was just comprising of the shape of the Arabian Peninsula printed on fabric to, to spur some kind of nationalism. There is firefighters in some countries, I think Bangladesh, for example, or Indonesia, I'm not sure. Uh, and they have, there's several countries having bright orange versions of a camouflage 
to show, okay, we are wearing a uniform, it's a firefighting thing, but still part of whatever organization. Um, I don't know, I don't see fully the, the idea behind that, but uh, yeah, there is camouflage in quotation marks uh, that's very colorful, just going with the identification uh, idea rather than the, the camouflage idea, especially with police that often have bright blue camouflage uniforms. India, for example, I've seen their rapid reaction force when I was in India, and they had a bright, bright blue version of their country's camouflage just to to signify the police. But we also, I don't know, the camouflage, I guess, is to show we're part of the armed forces or whatever. This reminds me of uh, one of William Gibson's books. I think it's probably Pattern Recognition again. I've mentioned it a few times before, where he talks about how um, army uniforms have to be impressive they have to look cool they have to look good that actually being fashionable and <laughs> yeah. recognizable is a major part of the uniforms you're not i guess there's yeah. nothing yeah. casual or yeah. about them at all Especially dress uniforms. I mean, dress uniforms is a whole different topic. Um, in Germany, for us, the dress uniform wasn't really an important thing. Germany has a very dull, simple-looking uh, dress uniform. I think uh, Helmut Schmidt, a famous uh, chancellor from the 1970s, um, he once said, like, a German soldier looks like a cigarette seller or something <laughs> back then because it's a grey, you look a bit like a janitor or something. Um other countries are very, I mean, in, in Great Britain, they have a lot of different dress uniforms and they are very important with all the formal functions. I mean, you see it at Buckingham Palace and everything. Um, in Germany, we have simply one, like most soldiers simply have one simple dress uniform. You use it on very certain occasions, but I don't know, maybe two times a year or so I was wearing it, or maybe one time a year when I was having some formal function. Um, but yeah, that's a whole different thing, the dress uniforms in, a, in, a, in an army. And in some armies, it's, it's very, very important. Now, years ago when we first connected, not quite sure how long it is now, but it's been a while, one of the things you introduced me to, and I only had a vague idea of them before that, but the silk escape maps, you're going to have to talk a bit about that. But of course, um, silk escape maps, yeah. Um, they were a thing, I don't know when it started, I know it's been a thing in World War II. Um, I know that for sure because uh, I simply saw in one French museum they found a British uh, parachutist smog um, and recently, like a few years ago, they opened one of the scenes in a museum uh, and found a Sunin silk map. So they were definitely a thing in the Second World War and later. What they did was um, they, like the military came up with an idea, okay, we need to give certain paratroop forces pilots and um, a way of having a map with them and if you've been a soldier or if you've been a surveyor or an outdoor man you know having a paper map um accessible at the same time readable at the same time waterproof is a pretty difficult thing um to have a paper map with you that that, that keeps up against the elements and stays readable and stays light and foldable you can laminate it, but then you lose foldability, whatever. It's a complicated thing, especially back then when there wasn't such a thing as plastic laminate easily available. So they started printing maps as escape maps, uh, mostly, um, on silk. Because silk is, of course, waterproof and it's very, very, very fine material, um, which is why they can print very, very detailed things on them. 
um, I had a printer, like a professional. His whole life he's been working at a printer factory, a big German uh, uh, printing machine manufacturer. And he's been in my studio and he saw the maps and he was like, whoa, I can show you all the details. The reinforced rim, this is where the, the cardboard was glued to, to, to keep it super, super clean, super flat. And then it's been a six color, six screen process, um, printing process. So yeah, what they did, they, they made maps very detailed um, for their scale, um, like a proper land map, but on silk. That you could fold and sew into your clothes to hide it. You could use it as a kind of a scarf um, wrapped around your neck. And at the same time, you had a fully functional map in case your plane got shot down or like a paratrooper, you're going down somewhere, you may not know absolutely where you are and you have a very, very detailed yet waterproof and uh, reliable map. And like... And, oh. <laughs> Like all army stuff, they're bountiful still today. Yeah, I was, they, they are not super bountiful, but I found in like at least one German seller, and that's where the connection to you came, and some of the maps he had, I don't know, it was Kandahar, and on the backside it was something in northern Iran. They are, uh, to make clear, they are British uh, Royal Air Force maps that guy sells um, from the early 50s. And apparently they made maps for areas that would be of interest. I don't think they made it for the whole world, but of areas that would be of uh, interest. A lot of things are northern former Soviet Union or Norway. And that's where you came into play. <laughs> that I had some of, uh, I think it was Nomso or Naxos or one of the, or Tromso, or like one of the maps your hometown was on. Tromso, yeah, Trump. So, and yeah, that was luckily one of the maps uh, the seller I found was selling. Um, but I have to, to say to make clear, I'm not the only one working with it. There's proper fashion brands working with it. Um, not only, but one of them, of course, Rayburn Design in London. Um, you've had Chris on the show, and they are making proper fashion from it. Uh, not like me, just using a bit of a map. They're making dresses from it and everything. So, uh, yeah. They are having a, a plentiful afterlife, these silk maps. Well, it's, it's quite remarkable because, as you mentioned before, that, I mean, a lot of the military-made stuff is high quality. And I can't imagine the sort of cost per map to make silk escape maps, which might conceivably be used, but probably rarely. That's a point. Uh, I'm with you there. And the printer, uh, the printer guy was in my uh, was in my studio. Um, yeah, he told me he said it it would be so expensive to make them nowadays to have silk made in that relatively good quality, being being robust and very 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 smooth, and having a six or seven color silk screen printing process. Um, he said it it must have been super laborious. I thought it was a simple rap, 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 printing, 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 but he was showing me the, the printing marks, the, the fabrication marks, um, and he said that that was super um, laborious to make them. And on both sides, they always printed on both sides. So you're having, I don't know how many uh, yeah, screen printing um, uh, processes or rounds you have to go through, uh, all the different colors they made. Not super colorful, but I think the one he showed me, the Norwegian one, was five or six colors at least. They had to print, yeah. Very laborious, very interesting, and uh, relatively affordable nowadays as military surplus. 
So with escape maps, um, G-suit, uh, zips, um, shelter halves, and whatever other ex-army kit you can get your fingers on, you make various bags. How does that come about? Um, yeah, there was like I told you when I was after I left the army in like 2017, I came back to Magdeburg. I was making these amateurs bags. But I was always thinking of um, making a bag, like catching, catching the essence, the style, the appearance of a certain era, of a movie, of a photography. Um, and in my case, it was a military thing. And the inspiration was like soldiers always had local tailors make stuff for them. There's like two two inspirations I had. One of them was um, American paratroopers prior to the invasion in Normandy. They had a lot of stuff rigger made, like a rigger, parachute rigger is a guy making the parachute, repairing the parachute, sewing the parachute. And they went to their riggers and said, okay, we've got a new radio. There's no pouch with it, but we need it when we're jumping out of the airplane. Can you rig up a harness for it? or a bag from the stuff you have here in your rigger workshop, like heavy canvas, parachute straps, parachute material, parachute hooks, because that's what they had. They couldn't order on Etsy or something, some fancy hooks. <laughs> um, and that's by incident what I made in the army when I was modifying my gear. Back then there wasn't a tactical trim or extreme textile where you could order stuff. There was extreme textile, but they only had civilian colors like black and light green or something. You couldn't get everything in military specifications. So I was salvaging a lot of stuff, shelter house in the army, stuff the supply guy uh, sorted out and was throwing away and was like, hey, Phil, you need maybe this old stuff to sew with and to tinker with. And I was seeing the parallel and I thought, yeah, that's, it's, that's its own style. It's its own, the rigger-made appearance. It's, it's a real thing. And the other inspiration was, um, especially in Vietnam, it was famous for tour jackets. Like people were giving uh, poncho liners, like insulated blankets, to a local tailor in Saigon, and they were making you a jacket, like a dinner jacket or like a like a like a hunting or kimono, and they were printed on the backside or embroidered on the backside. My Vietnam tour, Saigon from '47, you know what I'm, you know yeah. what I mean. The idea, like 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 a tour jacket, they were made in Germany everywhere. So soldiers always had um, trinkets being made or yeah things like that. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to make something like that? Um, but as a bag, like a messenger bag, a pure civilian thing, no soldier would have made for him for a practical reason because a satchel is always slinging around and stuff like that. Um, and and that's what what uh, how I started. I thought like, okay, I'm 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 I'm, I'm looking for a certain picture, for a certain idea, for a certain era, and I try to take only things a soldier in that situation, in that movie, in that whatever it is, um, what he would have had to give to a tailor and have a bag made. And in my case, um, it was uh, I can make it like trace it down to one thing. It was a I think 1980s 90s. Um, box of matchbox one to seventy two British paratroopers. And these have a, these have always have a cheesy box art picture. 
I still have it. I had it as, as a child. And as even as a child, I, I was collecting military things. So I went into a deep box at my mother's basement and found the old box art I kept from the, I don't know, somewhere in the 90s when I got it. And it was a vaguely Falkland War era paratrooper setup with, uh, I remember, British DPM jackets and green pants. And they're maroon colored barrettes, like, like barrettes, like our German paratrooper barrettes are maroon. So that was my first military film back. I combined, I salvaged a pair of British, uh, like British smog, and I had the DPM color. I combined it with uh, uh, olive drab canvas. I had the olive drab color of the pants the guys were wearing on the box art. And I added some maroon felt, like from a beret, like the berets they were wearing, or the berets. Um, and yeah, that was like... Uh, it was liked on, on Instagram and by friends, and they were like, oh, that's cool. It's not too military, but it's also fancy, but it's not. Well, it's it's clearly not a military issue piece because it's got the maroon felt and the camouflage combination thing, but it still looks a bit military. And I thought maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I, I, I found a niche here, having something that has no tactical purpose or something, but it's more like a remembrance thing, more like a bring back, um, theoretical bring back. Yeah. That is uh, is a remarkable story. Um, I mean, do people realize that this actually came from the Matchbox, the cheesy Matchbox model art? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that before. <laughs> I, uh, I think, I think maybe a very, very early in my Instagram, there should be a post about it. I try. I, I maybe I, I uh, uh, remember people now. I, I share it again. But that was my first inspiration, and then it was something like a good friend who always was, who also was into vintage military, and we thought something like. Belgian mercenary in Belgian Congo or somewhere. A bit political difficult, but we thought the, the, these people, they also had a certain style with, with the British, uh, with the old Belgian uh, parachute smocks, camouflage with, with berets, with a bit of leather, with maybe South African rabbing combination something like it um that also worked out pretty well so i thought yeah maybe maybe i'm really onto something and i tried to specialize even more into that incorporating movies later on um or like like a certain photograph photography and seeing like okay that's interesting i got everything i got a bit of everything pictured in that photography i've got the color of the pants i've got the color of the jackets i've got the camouflage they're sitting under uh, the parachute camouflage uh, the, the camouflage parachute maybe i could transform the idea into a bag on a very low level i'm no designer but um yeah it's like a cosplayer maybe even or something like like not exactly copying something i see on screen not like a larper like a life life action roleplay guy or like an airsoft person being 100 percent accurate more like an idea of of uh of the aesthetics i see on the photo and capturing that into a bag into a yeah hypothetical memorabilia thing it's almost like you're, you're telling a story or or creating an artifact almost <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the idea, and that's uh, what what became what kind of became my my specialty or my niche, so to speak. To to there's other guys making that type of bags, some better than me, to be honest. I think a handful I know from I know online only uh, that are doing that even better than me. But I try to to sell a story. So when I when I combine it with a movie, 
like with the aesthetics of a movie, I, I, I try to get a movie picture, a movie, movie photo, uh, movie poster from the period the movie came out to, to give with it. Also, um, nowadays everyone gets a, um, a fact sheet, so to speak. Like my invoices and everything I printed on the back side uh, of the reverse side of land maps. Um, I cut up old land maps and they get a folded piece of paper where every single piece of fabric or webbing used in a bag um, is represented soon onto and with a short English German description. Uh, so even if you forget what your bag is made of, even later to impress your friends, you can put it out of your bag, fold it up, and be like, okay, this is camouflage from this is a duffel bag from um so yeah i'm really trying to to give someone a story behind this piece uh and don't have it be anachronistic have it have the right fittings the right webbing um for a 1950s piece velcro wouldn't work because there wasn't there was no velcro especially not in the army so i have to have 1950s vintage metal buckles for example and that's the kind of thing i try to um Try to combine into a into a little story that goes around the bag. Some have a very deep story, some have a very shallow story. It depends on the bag, of course, and your interest. We'll come back to that in just a moment. <laughs> and of course, um, I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned that you make bags inspired by films. Are there any mm -hmm. specific films you can mention in that respect? By chance, there is one specific film, Nick. <laughs> Great you're asking. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I've, I've spoken about it before and I've, I've sh shared it on Instagram quite a lot. But um, there used to be, uh, or there was a very cheesy 1984 movie called Red Dawn with uh, Patrick Swayze and Charlie Cheen. It's a movie, um, I think it's a John Melius movie. In, um, story is Soviets and Cuban soldiers invade the southern United States and a bunch of teenagers uh, or young grown-ups, they go into the mountains and uh, wage partisan warfare. They call themselves the Wolverines and they wage partisan warfare against the Soviets and Cuban occupiers. It's a very cheesy movie. It's not a historical documentary exactly. Um, the interesting point there is... Um, and there's been videos about just that camouflage uh, already. Um, of course, they didn't have original Soviet uniforms. So the costume maker did a very wise choice and had an inspiration or was inspired by photos of Soviet uniforms and made a proprietary pattern just for that movie. They made thin camouflage oversuits, like just like the Soviets had back then. Um, their camouflage pieces were very thin pieces worn over your, your normal uniform. Um, it's a very distinct camouflage pattern only used in that movie. Uh, later reused in Rumble Free and uh, some other movies. Like I said, there's there's history videos just on that camouflage right now on YouTube, um, if you're interested. Um, and I got a reprint of that camouflage. I found it on a big page where you can upload your camouflage patterns or your ideas or whatever fabric, and they print you on demand how much you need. And some guy dig digitized that pattern and made it available. So I was, yeah, why not do what I do with a movie? And think like, what could have a Soviet soldier in that movie setting have had to have a bag made of? Or these partisan young guys, the Wolverines, uh, what could they have salvaged? Like some of that camouflage, of course. 
they could have had original Soviet uh, shelter halves. Um, I used those to combine with them. I used uh, Telnyashka, the uh, traditional uh, Soviet, uh, especially paratrooper underwear, like like a striped shirt. Um, a lot of branches wear them even now in Russia, but uh, every has their own distinctive color. I used some of the original inspirational Soviet camouflage that's available right now, of course, by now, um, and made pieces set in that movie setting, um, like they would have been made maybe by these guys sitting by the campfire uh, from salvage material, from guy, from from stuff they captured. Um, yeah, that's basically the uh, one of the movies I've worked with and that was relatively successful like I sold everything I made in that series I made several types of bags um, Soviet Vashmishoks like an original Soviet army backpack they used it for 100 years uh, I'm making that of course was never available in that pattern but it could have been in, in that movie setting um, messenger bags urban shoppers claim of such all types of bags are made in that pattern and uh, I combined them with original movie posters or, uh, yeah, they had small movie posters I found here in Germany uh, for cinemas, for for, for uh, yeah, cinema ethics, stuff like that. Um, and I combined them like like you, you got a piece of uh, original memorabilia from the movie. You got the bag. <laughs> <laughs> and um, without trying to stray too far out, um, by that time, I met uh, Owen Fronten. He's known as Camo Man on Instagram, a great guy working in the movies, as they say. Um, he became a very good friend I later met personally, and he's uh, doing exactly that kind of stuff now for movies. And he was like, uh, Phil, I know the guy who made the, the, the movie back in 1984, and he's got a few yards left of that original fabric from 1984. Um, shall I get it for you? I was, yeah, but of course, but of course. So we made up a trade. He got something, he's German, something peculiar. I could get him and he got me that fabric and lots of other stuff. So now when I'm making, if or when I'm making the next series um, or you're having a custom-made piece in that fa camouflage fabric made, uh, I am also including a small piece of like authenticated original 1984 camouflage pattern <laughs> that you can touch and feel. It's not good for bags because like I said, it's very thin material, but uh, that's very, that's like the epiphone of what I'm trying to do. Uh, um, Selling a story, so to speak, or or or, or telling a story and selling <laughs> the story to you. You're getting a bag that might not be super innovative because it's a messenger bag. There are hundreds out of there. There are better ones. There are waterproof ones. There are likely more innovative ones. But it's made from from an interesting material. You get a story with it. You get a, a piece of history with it. And for the kind of people who like that more than your I don't know, functionality. Um, for that, I'm trying to make bags. That's like the, the, the uh, every box is checked on that series of bags, for example, yeah. I'm very pleased you bring a sense of humor to this because it could have been a very, very serious matter yeah. uh, combining all this, but it, it reminds me of, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get there, but making pacifist versions, demilitarizing it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also struck by uh, by the labels, the documentation you, you give with them. 
because it resonates well with what I've talked about on a few occasions about how people should never really ask me about what I'm wearing unless they have time to stand around and listen for a while. It's a total exactly. sort of garmsman thing. Uh, but if someone asks about the bag you're carrying, you can sort of, well, now, listen up. Let me walk you through this. It may take a while. <laughs> um, which is, which is Ex great. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Not all of my customers are like that. They are quite a few who don't know the slightest about camouflage and they just go by the aesthetics. It's like, oh, I like the pattern. Women, a lot of like, I was surprised middle-aged or older women uh, sometimes bought my, especially camouflage bags just for the aesthetics. Um, I'm happy with that too. You know, that's what you, that's why I'm happy. You said I am having a bit of a laugh at it or having a bit of humor at it because I don't take all that too seriously. I don't take myself too seriously. And I've been a soldier. I've jumped out of frigging airplanes and I've, I haven't even taken that seriously. <laughs> no, there's no, uh, there's no rule saying everything military has to be seriously. Everything camouflage has to be serious. That's an honorable thing. People, blah, blah, blah. They don't. People can be like that if they want, especially collectors can be, but I'm I'm absolutely not like that. I don't see anything camouflage as sacred or something like that. If a piece has a historical value, I appreciate that, but uh, I'm definitely one who generally says everything with camouflage has to be serious because it's a serious uh, job, a serious thing to do. Oh no, come on. <laughs> I've been a kind of a paratrooper myself and even I didn't take that serious because it's a funny thing if you like for me it always was a thing and having fun made, made everything just just much more endurable and i try to convey that with my fashion or with my bags i'm making it's a fun thing and uh, if you want to take it serious you're welcome but uh, you don't have to because soldiers don't do either they don't care what they're wearing most of them they don't even know the camouflage is called they're wearing it it's issued and after that they throw it away or throw it in the washing machine or whatever um yeah that's why i'm trying to have a bit of a humor of of, of twinking eye always with my bags too they are after all a fantasy item they are no not an historical artifact they are the my inspiration or my my interpretation of a historical thing that's what they are and of course, you do start most days with a cup of coffee and a pair of scissors and you're cutting stuff up. So you're not truly precious about it either. Yeah, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like, luckily, it's very rare. Sometimes I have people on my Instagram profile that are very offended that I cut up XYZ uniform, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Won't care to elaborate. And usually they don't. And then I just like, Say goodbye, have a good fun on Instagram. <laughs> but I don't want negativity there. And I mean, I'm running, trying to run a small business and having fun on Instagram. That's why I don't bother with these people there. It's very rare, but sometimes I have people like that. Very rarely. You have mentioned that you've made good connections on Instagram. I have, yes. You, for example. I mean, Nick, you're the best example. You've been oh. one of the first, one of the first totally strangers I met on Instagram. We actually came to talk, and after much back and forth and delaying on my side, I'm afraid I made you a bag. Even you wrote about, and uh, that's been like uh, like a very early inspiration. Your style, your the, the, the type of how you approach fashion. You're also, you're you're not super serious either. 
you're not making reels with a dark tone, a dark voice, and tell people how to wear their socks and everything. You're having fun with it. And that I find very relatable. And yeah, indeed, I fell in love with the, old, with the whole Instagram world. Some people use TikTok and find that as their medium. For me, it was Instagram. I was very late in the show on Instagram. I think I started 2018 or so to seriously use it. But I found it so enriching, seeing inspiration by other guys making stuff. Like I told you, I think I met like five guys there who are making equally or even better bags than me <laughs> um, in a similar fashion or a vaguely similar fashion. And I met, like you, so many interesting people that just share their, their, their love for, for fashion, for camouflage, for whatever it is, and aren't like typical collectors like you meet in online forums that are usually very serious and they don't take anything for granted because they have been collecting for, I don't know, 40 years. And it doesn't matter that you've just been out of the army after 14 years or something because they have been a conscript for 10 months in 1973 and they know everything. And it's a, it's a strange world. I always struggled with, with serious collectors. And on Instagram, yeah, like I said, you have so many funny people and knowledgeable people who, who um, always share what, what they love. And a good example is who we already spoke about, Chris Rayburn, who had behind Rayburn Design a fantastic label in London and used to be based in Hackney. Uh, you've met him on your show and it was yes, so yes, yes. Imp impressive. And he's the guy, he, he win every award for sustainability at Fashion Days, it seems. Um, there's, they're doing really great work. And I always... I, I I told you, Chris, like I feel like a like a bootleg version of them because they are also wearing <laughs> without flight suits, but they're not wearing they're not using two. They are working with like a metric ton. And they are they are right. buying two metric tons of parachutes and making stuff from it, not one or two on eBay. And it's it's so fantastic that even he, like a guy so far away from me in, in terms of business or working, he, he always was, was impressed by the stuff I did and liked or uh, it, it, he expressed his admiration of what I'm doing and was always helpful. And when I finally uh, went to London, like a good year ago, um, to visit a friend, Owen Froughton, the cameraman guy who was shooting a movie there and, and invited me to go there. I hit up with Chris Rayburn and was like, Chris, I'm coming to London. Is there a possibility maybe I can drop by and we just have a chat? And he was, yeah, of course, I'm having a studio tour on that day. Maybe you can arrange a trip around it. You can be with the studio tour. And afterwards, we, we hit the pub and have a real talk or something. <laughs> and it was so impressive having like an icon. I'm, I'm, I'm geeking out, you know. <laughs> Actually, I'm having my groupy moment here, but having like an, like an icon of both a fashion world, to be honest, because they're making really, really proper fashion and still working so much with military surplus uh, on a totally different level than I am and yet being so open towards what I'm doing, towards who I am, to its the struggle I have, to be honest, as a single person, guy with no business knowledge, no proper training in, in, in tailoring or anything. Um, it was really, really something to 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 meet him and, and get some tricks and 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 his opinion on what I should do, what I should specialize in, what he struggled with when he opened his, his label twelve, thirteen years ago, or maybe fifteen by now, um, starting as a fashion student, being on his own, trying to salvage military gear because that's how he started. Also, that's a 
just a great thing, I think. And I, I'm really not someone uh, complaining about social media, about all these things, because you have it in your hand. If you're a healthy person, you can put it out of your hand. You can block people that are toxic. It's really what you make from it. And like we both met, like I met Chris Rayburn. We met another friend, Michael, the Tintin Fellow. I met on the same trip to London. I went to him into his small college. I know you, you two have been friends. Um, he was like, had me sleep in his house. It was super great. We've never met before. We just met from Instagram via common friends. I think we met via you even. Um, yeah, with him, I went to Regent Tailoring in Salisbury. Maybe you know these guys. Um, they're having a small on Instagram, yeah. yeah, vintage fashion, but they also make their own fashion. And Jason, the, the head of that shop was like, Bill, I love your bags, but you make me one. And maybe if you have capacity make some for our shop and i was whoa this is talking now what is happening yeah i was just meeting a friend i made on instagram he invited me met another guy who is the sustainable fashion guy chris baby then met michael met met jason from region tailoring and that that story alone tells you i think why, why i personally fell in love with instagram it's uh in my age cohort i mean i'm 36 now it's not uh super common to be on social media a lot it's not super rare especially the older people get the more rare it is but uh, in in my cohort like in my surrounding it's always like oh you're using instagram it's still a bit of a of a weird thing you have to explain and people are like yeah but it's just clicking wasting time and i always tell them these kinds of stories and be like no no i met nick there i met him back he, he wrote a fantastic article about that because he was impressed i met Michael, I made this, I made that, and that's something I, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be able to communicate. I'm not, I'm not being paid by Meta, <laughs> and it's got his struggles. Um, I'm not seeing it as I'm trying to reach most possible followers or something. I just like the kind of uh, interaction you have with people all around the world who, who may become friends, who may not, but who share their enthusiasm with you. And that's something I was so impressed of, so surprised that people are less, oh, what you're doing is all wrong because you're a historical artifacts and this is wrong and this is wrong. No, people were like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, Nick, I sold a Red Dawn, my last Red Dawn movie back, I sold to a guy in Canada in a village. I looked it up with 300 people living there or 200 even in north i think northwestern canada there was minus 40 degrees celsius temperature so when i looked it up and 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 he found me online my bag and was like dude i was in that movie with my father i remember that and i i fluffed it all the time and i'm so happy a guy from eastern germany is making a bag from that pattern with original soviet material and uh kind of i'm still blown away by that it's yeah i'm just scrolling back on instagram now reading uh from when you uh actually visited uh chris rayburn yeah <laughs> yeah i've got the, the post the uh, longest, yeah, I, I, uh, messages <laughs> you were just so uh yeah completely astonished yeah i was totally blown away by his guy the whole studio there they're they great great guys he was like hey guys this is this is phil the guy from tectonic and they're like ah oh, yeah yeah i know salvaging this and this and this and i was i was blown away it's it's really cool because we have a lot of overlap like like literally they have like like in my studio what you see behind me what the listeners unfortunately can't see where the uh, my my sample my pattern room for flight gear is hanging 
Those are old uh, heating pipes I found in my studio, and I hung them from the roof um, with large firefighter hooks I had and old ropes. And when I was in Rayburn's studio, a lot of the things there were hang on proper pipes labeled and everything and proper ropes and proper hooks and they had the device to lower them and raise them but uh, yeah i'm like a bootleg version <laughs> to speak of, of like what they had in the studio and it wasn't i didn't know that i just came on it by myself and saw it and was like what is uh, <laughs> how is this possible of course they had everything like laser engraved with raven and everything like i said proper fashion proper professionals via mine is all old gear but yeah <laughs> it's interesting because I think Chris Rayburn comes from the same same sort of roots. Um, I remember he sent me a photo of um, it was a project he'd done while he was doing his studying, I think fashion studies or something. But it was this immensely cool jacket made up of about seven or eight military jackets, all cut up and mashed up. And, and I was thinking, wow, that is just so good. And that plays into... What I wanted to talk about the uh, Maharishi, another brand we've mentioned, the Hardy Blackman uh, camouflage guy. I mean, he's been going for must be twenty years now, if not more. And one of his uh, slogans on his packaging is "pacifist military design," which I think puts a very important spin on it because he's recycling, upcycling all this inherently violent stuff and making pacifist versions of it. A lot of it streetwear a lot of it i couldn't wear i do have a harris tweed jacket he made some years ago in there with camouflage printed on it which i think is um, pretty nice i don't wear it that often mind you but um <laughs> yeah is that something you can relate to i realized there was absolutely no question in there <laughs> yeah absolutely uh thanks for this story um i had that very jacket in my hands um he ah. was Still has it in his. Uh, it's not even in a pattern room. I mean, I was a, I was like literally locked into his archive. He was like, "Ah, oh, dude, nobody, nobody can come here. But if you want, take your time. Uh, just let me know when you run out of the basement, and you can go through my pattern room." That was really impressive. And he still has it in his or in the studio. They just moved out of uh, end of last year. Um, he had that very jacket you were talking about, made from British uh, khaki dress uniforms. Uh, the big impressive jacket he made in his studies. Yeah, he's, he he showed me that that very example. That was really impressive. On the uh, Marishi thing and the motto, of course, the Marishi I, I learned of uh, I learned of that label from Hardy Blackman's book, which is still impressive. But like I said, I think one and a half grand you have to pay for it now. Um, shortly talk about that later if you want to about how I I, I found that book. But okay. um, they are they are too expensive for me, I think, because they are also making proper fashion, and it's usually out of my price range with the wearing old military gear used. Um, but the idea, I very much um, go with it. In Germany, they had a big slogan for the peace movement uh, all the time called the "Swords to Plowshares." I think it's maybe an international thing, but the idea gets. I mean, it gets the idea across making swords roads into into flow shares into a purely civilian use item yeah um and that's what i'm doing as well that's why I, another thing why i uh, don't have any or big morality issues with anything of the camouflage thing because i think personally i don't glorify anything military anything camouflage 
And even more so, I'm taking something from a military background that usually hasn't been used to do any nefarious things because a lot of things, like I told you, has never been used and still surplused because there's a new item. A lot of the stuff is, is run just in peacetime on barracks. But I'm using a particularly military item and giving it a distinct civilian purpose. Most of the things I use are, 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 are make aren't even being able to be used by soldiers, yeah, except of maybe some document pouches. I know a flight doctor in the uh, German Navy uses one of my pouches made from a flight suit, and he uses this into his uh, but search and rescue helicopter all the time. Um, but yeah, something I definitely go with it. It's not my main course of motivation, so to speak. I'm not driven by demilitarizing the world. Uh, so to speak, but it's definitely a point uh, why I don't have any moral struggle with what I do because I say I, I use a military item, I, I take it away from a military purpose, give it a purely civilian purpose, a peaceful purpose, uh, and I'm doing it with a bit of a smile, with a bit of a tricky eye, uh, and not taking it too serious. Yeah, very important, like you said. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. Another very important point of working with military surplus. And of course, I mean, in a world where we are, there's so much talk about upcycling now, where there's just so much stuff that can be reused, using the military stuff has to be done. Because I, I don't think people realise just how much there is. I recall um, some years ago, there's this place in Gothenburg who uh, who sell a lot of military stuff. And they were showing how they'd got a whole container of Vietnam-era OG-107 fatigues, a whole container full had been delivered, and they used the local prison there to um, to sort of prep it for sale and so forth. Oh. But a whole container, and this is stuff that's what 40, 50 years old mm. and is sold as rarities, but still you can get container loads, i.e., bulk yeah. delivered. I mean, that just indicates to me that it's not rare, there's so much out there. So we should probably be reusing a whole lot more than. I mean, I know you're doing your bit here, but we need My a million, million Phillips. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. I think, <laughs> thank you for the price. Uh, yeah, I'm just doing what I can. I mean, I'm also not uh, orthodox about it or anything religious, so I use new stuff when it's uh, when it's feasible. Like, for example, I mentioned Velcro. Um, when I was a poor 16-year-old, old guy uh, making his own pants i was salvaging everything i even tried to salvage the threads and were using was using the very cheapest from the local supermarket because i couldn't afford more but uh, velcro for example is something you can't really reuse because it's got a life cycle of about a thousand opens and closes um so i'm using new material when it's feasible and and, and profit the product uh, in a disproportionate way um but uh yeah, but you bring it up with the military stuff. I think even more the point is the stuff I'm doing. Like I told you with a movie that was a military movie, but you can do it with everything. I think I always bring up, I'm so inspired by, well, not so inspired, sounding like a groupie again or like, <laughs> like an influencer, but <laughs> I love the Wes Anderson movies. I think everyone does. And they have their own aesthetics, obviously. And I mean, there's a big web page mm -hmm. and uh, a big book I got accidentally Wes Anderson, where people send in photos that could have been from a Wes Anderson movie settings. Okay. And 
So obviously someone else found a very, very distinct palette palette and a distinct style. And why can't you like become the guy making accidentally Wes Anderson movie fashion, so to speak? You know, I, I think my approach is it's just what I'm a geek of. I, I know a bit of camouflage. I know a bit of village military. I've got a bit of authority on like I've done this stuff. Don't patronize me and I can do that. But uh, maybe I branch into that direction. And I always try to encourage people like if camouflage is really not your thing because it's a bad thing or whatever it is why camouflage not your thing you can do it with everything else ambulance services you're selling about a shitload of sorry uh, a ton of um vintage military gear being available you know how how much uh, ambulance stuff is available you can order for a few bucks you you can bid on 20 pairs of bright orange with silver reflective style a german red cross ambulance driver yes. not an ambulance driver an emt <laughs> But, uh, for example, do that. Rayburn, they have done a series with uh, ambulance uh, clothes or emergency department clothes. Um, yeah, I guess hospital clothes are sold off by the tons. Maybe someone can do can do that. And that's, uh, that's for me, a point. Uh, I'm not preaching do the military surplus. If you don't, please, there's a lot of other stuff. Uh, if you want to yeah. be, do upcycling. If you want to save money, if you want to be unique, if you want to, to live that spirit, um, yeah, maybe go with ambulance clothes. They can be super cheap. Firefighter clothes, sometimes a bit more expensive, but uh, yeah, you can find the way I'm doing uh, or what I'm doing with a lot of professions, with a lot of ideas, with a lot of, you know what, used work clothes, I think are super cheap. Um, the plethora of working clothes, um, I mean, they are collectible on their own. Um, 1950s work clothes or whatever, you can specialize in that and get on cheap work clothes, pimp them up maybe with a bit of different things. So yeah, that's what I uh, always try to, to encourage people or I, I don't want to preach, but if people ask me and I say like, you don't have to do the stuff with the military. All you've said just now, Nick, is is also true for a lot of other areas of jobs or of items you you could get your hands on, I think. And I think one point that goes for all of that is also that these are, I say, clothes in air quotes that hmm. had a very specific purpose they were made for, but aren't really usable in any sort of other situation. I mean, you can't sort of walk around wearing EMT uniform you would stand or, out <laughs> or, or a flight suit a g suit or i mean you couldn't actually use them for anything else exactly another thing in common with the military of course you can wear uniform but i always have my wool i think we spoke about it earlier years ago i tend to go with one piece camouflage and the rest non-camouflage so it's either a pair of pants and then a like a non-military uh, jacket or vice versa, a military top and a pair of jeans or one single colored pants. Um, but yeah, you can't really, or you should, or I don't know, you can do whatever you want with a uniform, but uh, you would quite stand out wearing only military fashion. So yeah, it's also kind of, of single use, uh, like with uh, EMT paramedic gear, you would kind of stand out <laughs> indeed. You're right. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. you're using even that's a great point using something that has been a single use or like a like a singular use uh, item um and giving it a, a totally different purpose because i wouldn't know what to do with those you can give them away to to uh uh, the old old clothes collection thing, but but who can wear a paramedic pants? Who want that bright orange with reflective stripes? You're right. Uh, yeah, you basically have to purpose them if you want to use them. Great point, yeah. Nick. Yeah, and we already have so much waste clothes that, yeah. I mean, we don't need more. I can I can see this charm though of buying a flight suit or something. It's sort of it would appeal to me as sort of well, that's cool. Hmm. Then I buy it and put it in a box in the basement, and it would forever annoy me because really, I wouldn't use it. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and of course, you have your whole cavern full of this kind of stuff now. So, uh... <laughs> well, uh, that what you're seeing behind me is actually like like my pattern room. I tend to, especially from the flight gear, I tend to keep one piece as a kind of sample for later inspiration. Uh, it's all not very, very expensive stuff I have here, but uh, yeah, I tend to not lose myself into hoarding too much stuff. It's a difficult thing, but something I will get to. Something I learned from Rayburn, trying to work in a collection, not make every always unique pieces, but try to group them, stuff like that, so you don't get overburdened with the stuff of material you have, because once you start getting stuff, you always want to keep it handy, and it's not... Uh, it's something, to be honest, you have to be aware of if you're working, if you're trying yourself to, to work with upcycled stuff, um, you need a lot of room because I always envy guys. I have friends who are making impressive bags from new graphic material, like climbing buckles and everything, and they have these small cabinets with small little little drawers like with this is my 25 millimeter one inch buckle this is my 25 millimeter triglide but i can't have that because i don't have one type of, of thing because i'm salvaging so i have five old press runs 10 i took off rifle uh, uh, carrying slings and so i uh, yeah you need a uh, quite a bit of stock, so to speak, uh, and you can't just reorder. If my breast zippers from my pilot G-suits are, are gone, they are gone. I just really can't order them. Maybe I could, Scoville, and those brands are still active right now. Uh, interesting thing, because if uh, even if they are making them in Germany, the G-suits, they have to use the same zip, uh, zippers, because otherwise they would lose their airworthiness certificate, because they are certified with that type of zipper. Um, because they interact with the airplane. That's a pretty, pretty crazy thing. Similar thing with parachutes, by the way. So I just can't, or if I would order them, it would be super expensive. I mean, how much are high quality, proper brass zippers? I don't even know because uh, I haven't looked them up. But yeah, if you're upcycling, you always have to see, have to keep an overview of what, what kind of stuff you have and what's available for you and what's not available for you. And the less money you're willing or able to invest, which I totally understand coming from where I came from, um, the less choice you have. And that will force your hand in, in, in some decisions uh, in, in using material. And I envy the guys having like a super sorted cabinet with one type of fasteners, one type. I would love that. I love the efficiency of that. You know, I've worked yeah. in the, in the, myself in the emergency services. I love the effectiveness, the efficiency, having everything in a drawer labeled and everything. But I can't do that because, you know, then I get 
I don't know, five British rifle slings. I can get three hooks of them and two zippers and, or, or two fasteners. And I have to throw them into the back of 25 millimeter fasteners and have to, to, to look for two similar ones or whatever. Just, just to give you an example. Yeah. <laughs> That's a disadvantage. I seem to remember the hook on my bag was from a helicopter sling or something. Ah, like the big that. one. Yes, exactly. That's a helicopter load sling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Similar to some parachute gear, but a bit different because they are not self-locking. Yeah, uh, they are from helicopter sling loads. Something I got a lot of, luckily, when I had a bit of cash, so to speak. I could buy a, a big load of them because I like the webbing. I like the hooks. They have a triglite, a steel triglite uh, on them. Um, yeah, you can salvage a lot of these uh, helicopter load things. For example, a good example, yeah. Not often used on bags, I think, because they help. Ah, no, up. no. <laughs> and we have to be honest. Um, you have to. You, you, you've, you've learned yourself, uh, especially the bag I made for you. Pretty heavy. Pretty, pretty heavy. <laughs> pretty heavy bag, and they make it having a, an aircraft grade. Uh, I think they are rated for six tons, uh, six thousand kilograms. Um, steel hook on your bag doesn't make it lighter. <laughs> so yeah, that's a thing I don't. I'm not doing. I'm not 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 using those hooks that often anymore because people just said like, "Oh, Phil, I love your bag and the hook and everything," but I almost smashed my 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 car side window when I put my bag in <laughs> something like it. <laughs> yeah. Have to be aware of that. <laughs> now, you wanted to talk a bit about how you came across the infamous uh, Blackman DPM book, uh, which. Ah, yes. Been ah. reprinted because it's so expensive now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I wanted, yeah. Just because of the funny story. I am, just for a background, I started something on my Instagram, like everything. I start a lot of things and I'm not really straight in, in keeping them going, but uh, I will do from, from time to time. I started a like a tectonic book club and wanted to share interesting books about camouflage, sewing military gear, whatever it is, the stuff I do, like like everything that touches my areas of interest for for other people to 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 enjoy, to to learn about uh, and to get into interaction with. And the first book I tended to share was the Hardy Blackman book. And how did I find it? And that's a freaking story because I found it the same way I found the other the other um, like the first three books in my in my Tactonic um, book club. I found the same way i was in the um in the german armed forces like i told you in the airborne forces so i was airborne qualified and later got into special courses uh, ranger survivals stuff like this and that was held back then at the german airborne school um, a very traditional school very funky and like every armed forces school they have a library and <laughs> i i went there because i wanted a I wanted an, an atlas because there was one exercise in, in, in airborne school where you had to hold your own weight um, sitting in your in your parachute webbing. And the instructor was asking us uh, capitals, like capital of the Philippines. And you, okay. and if if someone had the right answer, you could lift your body weight like like you could relax. <laughs> and my thing was, okay, I can either go to the to the gym now and try to make a super fast course on being stronger or i find the library here and get an atlas and learn the state capitals <laughs> so i i did that and in that german armed forces airborne school library they had hardy blackman's 
disruptive pattern material book with the Maharishi branding on the outside and everything. And I was, I was speechless. I was, I, even now after years of having it, I don't know what the book is about, what the book is trying to tell. It's, it's like so much, it's, it's fashion, it's camouflage. It's the history of camouflage. It's military camouflage, it's civilian camouflage. It's art. It's so blowing you away. And I still don't know who bought it, uh, who made the decision to buy that book for the German Airborne Forces Library. I don't think they were renting out any books at all, let alone that book. And that was back in, I think, 2010, 11, 12. And it was still available. So I looked it up. Amazon, I was using back then still, even though it was bad. But uh, yeah, back then I was using Amazon still and bought it for the issue price of, I don't know, 150 euros or something. And yeah, I've had it ever since. And it's kind of a crazy story because I have no idea that really is no military history book or has any military value at all that book. Who decided to buy it for the German Airborne School Library? I don't know. But uh, yeah, I would like to thank that person because it introduced me into a whole new world um, of uh, what I would later try to do professionally. Yeah, combining camouflage military gear with, with fashion. And I'm sure everyone listening did not see the way that story would take because I was sitting here waiting for you to say, and you stole it from the library. <laughs> no, no, no. That would have been stupid because like in the army, there's a lot of paperwork involved. So, uh, yeah. But they had, the, uh, I still remember, they had like a copying machine or so. So you could copy single pages or so for free because, I don't know, that was that kind of service. <laughs> Crazy thing. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, that's that's how I found it. And I was blown away and was, yeah, wow, crazy. Thank you, uh, gods, for showing me that book and later bought it. Yeah. <laughs> So as as we come to um, towards the end now, where do you see yourself in five five years time? Ah, that's a question. <laughs> um, well, the point is, like a lot of makers, I came to learn over the last few years I've been doing this. Um, you you come to a crossroads, or not a crossroads maybe, but at one point you see it's difficult to make all these things for one person. To, to to make a living from it, to pay your rent, to pay your rent at home, to 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 buy new material, to do the sewing, to do the selling, to do the web shop. I have friends helping me, for example, setting up my web shop. I could never have done that myself. But um, the point is, at one point, you have to scale up what you're doing. And I learned that from Chris Rayburn as well. He told me he was at the same point. I was trying, for example, to outsource some of my production to local uh, little shops. They're usually literally called Asia Shop in Germany. I don't know why, but they always have writing on top of it, usually owned by Vietnamese people or something. And they always you offer very cheap clothing and sewing services or so sewing services. And... Um, some of my the stuff I make, like my simple Rashmi shocks, um, they don't need a lot of work when they are cut and prepared. Like I come up with the idea, I cut them, I pack them with a list and everything into one neat package, and there's everything you need for that Rashmi shock is in that package. With my major bags, I have to admit, when I'm making them, there is a bit of alteration. I see something better, so I I would uh, like to keep making them but for the simpler stuff so to speak uh, in quotation marks i saw no problem in giving that away because also other guys are, are plain tailors and their sewing would be better 
uh, I thought that my customers would even profit. And I fell flat on the nose with that. Because most of these sewing, sewing shops, they outright denied working for me. I don't know why. I never learned why. They said it wouldn't be possible to complicate it, whatever. I thought, well, maybe I'm highly gifted that I can make it. <laughs> because I found it pretty simple, but plus dull and boring. Um, to be honest, the making is really dull. It's just working, like like a, like in a, like in a coal mine or something. Something, um, and like one of those sewing shops worked, did the work for me, but it was totally unusable. The, the strap was, was without function. She was complaining like the, the the pouch was the wrong side, and I was like, I, I've been making a hundred and eighty of these now, a hundred and eighty. It never was the pocket out of sight because I'm not a professional. Nobody will see if it's one centimeter, half an inch too small, too big. That's not how I work. I don't do high fashion. It's it's a simple rug design, and at the same time, it was too complicated in other places, and it cost like double what I was selling them for back then. Just having it made. So long story short, why why am I selling? Uh, why am I telling this? Because I had like, another thing, Chris Raven had a similar experience when he was trying to 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 do the stuff he can do best, design and come up with ideas and doing having the sewing done by professional, not not like like uh, diminishing the quality because a professional seamstress is better at sewing than I would be. But uh, he said, yeah, you have to have someone you have an eye on. You, you, can, you can keep an eye on and say like, you're doing this now for six hours or five hours or twice a week or however you have an arrangement. And I think I would love to be able, after I've moved studio again, because I told you I'm now in a, in a large abandoned warehouse. It used to be a motor engine repair shop. Uh, it smells a bit like it. It's cold like it. And there's no, I have to, to, to use the bathrooms next door at my friend's restaurants which is all working for me, but it wouldn't be a good place to have a proper employee who's not a super enthusiast for vintage work, but someone who does sewing, um, no matter what. Uh, so my, I hope, I hope, like in five years, I would be in a place uh, after they've torn this place down in some years, I would be in a place with proper, like a proper sewing studio, so to speak, where I could hire someone, even if it's only for two days a week or one day a week or like for two weeks at um, the same stretch to sew additional projects for me. So I could get my volume up a bit, get my my quality up a bit. Maybe I could learn a thing or two from a professional tailor or seamstress and just uh, do more than... Now I'm doing the podcast with Nick. So half the day or I don't know, three hours I lose from my production schedule or from, from cleaning my studio or from doing this. But at the same time, I'm doing repairs for him and I want to sew the bags for him. And it's all as one person, pretty difficult without wanting to, to sound too whiny. It's, uh, it's a point. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you add the roads, like either you invest the money to, to pay someone who's making stuff for you that you might sell or might not sell if it's turning out badly and yeah i would love to be able to to have someone doing professional work for me um at least on a timely basis in a few years so i can say of course i can work for another shop because usually i turn them down it's a shop if a shop's asking me hey can you make like 10 bags for my shop downtown i'm like i would be happy if i can make 10 bags to sell in my web shop 
So let alone give it to someone else who's making money on it naturally. Uh, so cutting into my profits a lot. Usually a retailer will take like a hundred percent profit on it. So 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 you, you you're earning half stuff like that. To be a bit more relaxed and be like, of course I can make you ten bags. I call my lady or my guy, and he will come in and spend five days or something, make them properly. Um, so I have that out of my brain. That would be awesome. But uh, if it's going to work out, I have to see. Yeah, that's a tough one. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> Sorry for the long answer. Now, is there anything we should have mentioned that we haven't mentioned? Well, I would just li like to 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 thank you again, Nick, for for introducing me into that. Like, kind of, you've been the first guy on Instagram, the first stranger. I really like one of the first I really get, became friends with. I would like to say, and uh, it shows the common ground between people like you, the guys called dumbsmen, you know, the the proper gentlemen, <laughs> properly dressed gentlemen. And I, you are my prototype customer. If people ask me. Um, Guys in Germany who don't know anything about my customers and think like, oh, your your guy your stuff must be bought by soldiers. I would say no, no, no. Soldiers first thing if if uh, their work hours end, they put the uniform off because they don't want this. It's their job. They don't want to have anything to do with it in their free time. Usually, I say it's more like guys like Nick, like the world's dad, like like gentlemen, gunsmen who have who are wearing corduroy or wearing expensive good well-made shoes and good well-made sweatshirts and they have like one piece of vintage camouflage like in your case like a 1950s french camouflage combined with vintage uh, canvas and that's uh that's really great i think that's uh yeah that, that, that's that's a good example of uh what kind of people buy my gear not military nutheads or something but uh really guys who want like that one tiny touch of camouflage the one thing of be a bit military could be something else like like on a, on a touch that's that's really great and thank you for introducing me into that world and being like one of my first international big customers so to speak for a full-sized bag i made for you it is then. interesting because i got such a thrill when you were visiting rayburn and then michael and stuff it's something i keep <laughs> experiencing with the podcast that yeah. connecting people yeah that's awesome and that's super awesome very gratifying Okay, Philip. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It was an absolute joy. It was a big pleasure for me too. Bye-bye for now. And that was all for this week's Gumology. More fresh episodes in the coming weeks. Hit subscribe or follow to automatically download the next episode as soon as it's published. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate a review and a rating. I've had some wonderful ones lately and it really pleased me. If you listen on Spotify, you can leave a rating and um, yeah, surprise me. If you'd like to get in touch, my email is welldressedad at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram as welldressedad. There's also a Gomology podcast uh, account on Instagram where you can uh, see the episodes as they arrive. Again, links and details and etc. in the show notes, including a link to my Patreon details if you'd like to uh, sign up and support via Patreon or, you know, buy me a coffee, whatever, if you want to. There's no, absolutely no pressure. So, until next week, bye-bye for now. <laughs>